You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. read those verses that we largely just sang. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or schemes of the devil. Now, I had every intention of coming to Daniel 6. In fact, I worked on it all the way up until about 2 o'clock. But I just didn't have the mental energy to complete. So that will give me a jump start for next week. Uh, But this week we're going to come to something a little simpler, or at least simpler for me to prepare. And that is five ways to be strong in the Lord. Now, there's many verses that carry a miniature Bible within them. Some of them summarize the gospel and others are duty. Ephesians 6.10 in particular is of the latter sort. Within this little verse of scripture, we have a summary of the Christian life, the meat and potatoes of Christianity, practically speaking. If you want one text, there's obviously many of them, and we're going to look at a host of them tonight. But if you want one text that does beautiful to summarize the Christian life, it's this one. Finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Some of you might know William Grenall, an old Puritan, wrote uh, a very large volume, many, many sermons, on this broader passage of the Christian armor. And this is what he said towards the beginning of it on verse 10. The strength of the general in other hosts lies in his troops, But in the army of saints, the strength of every saint, yea, of the whole host of saints, lies in the Lord of hosts. Ordinarily, the general derives his strength from his army. He's as strong as his army is. Well, this is the opposite. The army is as strong as the general is. So I want to, first of all, give a a simple uh, explanation of verse 10. And then, as I've said, I want to suggest five ways that we can comply with it. A simple explanation. There's a couple of things I want to say about the phrase, be strong in the Lord and in the power of this might. We have, first of all, a vigorous activity. Be strong. This, of course, is a commandment. It's an imperative. We are to grow and or increase in strength. We're commanded to be strong. Now, if there wasn't the prepositional phrase that follows, that would run contrary to the rest of the Bible, wouldn't it? Because the scripture just doesn't tell us to be strong. It tells us how and why and where to be strong. But nevertheless, we find, first of all, an imperative, which implies vigorous activity. Be strong. Christians are not passive in the Christian life, but are expected to labor and work hard. Scripture elsewhere describes us as farmers, soldiers, and athletes. Those are all applied to the minister, but most of them are applied to Christians in general. 
all of which necessitate vigorous activity. A farmer has to lead. An athlete has to fight. Uh, a soldier has to fight. And an athlete has to run, has to train or run. None of those are passive activities. None of those are passive people. The farmer can't just sit back and watch. The soldier cannot just sit back and watch. And the athlete cannot just sit back and watch. They all have to participate. It takes hard work to do all three of those. And so, too, it takes hard work to be a Christian. The Christian religion isn't a lazy man's religion. It's for the diligent. It's for the hardworking. It's for the vigilant. Vigorous activity. Now, I want to show you this from a couple of texts, and then we'll move on to absolute dependence in the Lord. You um, can turn, first of all, to the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. Let me give you one sample text from the Psalter, and then maybe one or two from the New Testament. Psalm 18, notice verse 37. Psalm 18, 37. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. Here David is speaking, I think, probably about literal enemies. He's fighting for the Lord. He's fighting in the name of God. But, you know, the Old Testament is carnal and that is physical. It's temporal. The Old Covenant was a temporal covenant made with the temporal people, the physical seed of Abraham. So when we come into the New Testament, there's oftentimes this transition from, from temporal to eternal. Perhaps the best example of that is found in Jesus' quotation of the psalm where he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth or the land. That's a quotation from the psalm that's speaking in the first place of the Old Testament Israelites who would get Canaan. So there's an inheritance in the old and inheritance in the new, physical and eternal Canaan. Uh, keep reading, though, verse 39. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. So we find that David was anything but passive. Okay, again, and, and I totally understand, brethren, that this is a physical warfare that he's, that he's conducting here in the psalm. And we, too, have enemies, and our enemies necessitate us to fight them. Now, I didn't read the remaining verses. I probably should have. But if you go back to Ephesians 6, I read verses 10 and 11. If you read 12 and following, it says that we fight not against flesh and blood. As New Testament saints, we're still in a war. We still have enemies. We still have a general better than David. And we still have to fight. But it's a spiritual battle, spiritual conflict, a spiritual warfare. Um, how about a couple of texts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9? How about, uh, let's read just verse 26 and 7. If the last passage describes... Describe this activity by way uh, with the imagery of battle and warfare. This one describes it with the imagery of an athlete. Verse 26. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, 
but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Back in Psalm 18, there was a whole lot of eyes in those couple verses. I, I, I. I fight, I fight, I fight. Here it's I run, I run, I beat, I beat. This view that Christianity is some passive religion finds no warrant in the Bible. It's an active religion. You have to labor. How about one last one? Philippians 3, verse 12. Philippians 3, 12. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, this imagery is that of an athlete. He's running, he's laboring to, to obtain the prize. Again, you have a whole lot of eyes. We didn't count them up, but there's three, four, five, six, or seven of them in each of those passages. I, I, I. I do this. Why? Because we're told to be strong. But it's not just in itself vigorous activity, thankfully. Secondly, it's absolute dependence. Our text says, be strong in the Lord. This is the source of our strength. We're not to be strong in and of ourselves, but in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is strength that comes from Christ. So we're to be something, have and do something that we haven't native to ourselves, but we're to find it elsewhere. And we know that even finding it elsewhere is grace, as we're going to see here in a second. So us doing all these things is grace. We do so by his power. And even the deriving or the getting of that grace and strength is of his doing. But nevertheless, we are to be strong in the Lord. Christianity is not only not passivism, but neither is it moralism, which can be defined as any attempt to please God by looking within ourselves. Just keep trying harder, right? That's the, the doctrine of all false religions, all religious cults. Just keep trying a little harder. Well, that's not what this text says, and it's not what the scripture says. Yes, we are to work hard, but we're to work hard as we derive power and strength from Christ. In Christ, we have all the grace necessary for us to be faithful soldiers, farmers, and athletes. We have all of the grace and strength we need to defeat our enemies, to plant a good crop, and to finish the race and win the prize. Uh, if you're in Philippians, back up again to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints this incomprehensible love. So here we know that we derive grace from Jesus because the text says be strong in the Lord. But here it says that we get this grace from Jesus by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if you take this text, particularly verse 16, Ephesians 3.16, and couple it with the other text, Ephesians 6.10, we find that Christians are strengthened with grace, with power, with might, deposited in Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then we could even take another step and say, through ordained means. So how is it that Christians are strengthened with power and might that's in Jesus? The Holy Spirit communicates that grace, that power, that strength, that encouragement, all that we need to, fu to fulfill our duties. He communicates that from Jesus through means. And what are means? Well, prayer and the scriptures. The scriptures read, meditated, studied, but especially heard as they're preached. So through means, the Holy Spirit has, Christ has ordained means whereby and through which he communicates grace from himself by the ministry of the Spirit to his beloved people. Okay, now that's kind of, um, that's kind of the... Um, undergirding of, of all this, because I'm not going to take a I am going to mention some of that again, but nevertheless, uh, I'm going to kind of branch out with some particulars here in a few moments in suggesting five ways to be strong in the Lord. But before I do that, I want to say one last thing by way of this uh, explanation. We've seen vigorous activity, be strong, absolute dependence in the Lord, now I want to look up a couple of texts that weds these two together. Now, they're wed together in our text. Be strong in the Lord. But I want to show a few other texts that say the same thing. So if you're in Ephesians, go to the next book, Philippians 2. And verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So it's God's grace that enables us to do. But it's the same grace that enables us to want to do. So he doesn't just enable us to do, but he prompts us to want to do, to will and to do. Everything we do, brethren, from the beginning through the middle to the end of our obedience is of grace. It's not just the end product. He doesn't just give us grace to bear fruit. He gives us grace to dig the hole, plant the seed, water it, do every other thing you have to do to, to a crop to ensure that it's fruitful. So from the root to the fruit, it's grace. This is what this text tells us, doesn't it? Or else, one last one. Oh, well, two, two other ones, let's say. Skip to the, a couple of chapters uh, to Philippians 4 and verse 13. I can do all things. That sounds like a nice motivational bumper sticker. And it would be terrible if that was the whole verse, wouldn't it? 
I can do all things, yes, I know in the context, foremostly, living contently in a very difficult situation, but I can do that, and notice he says all things, not just live contently, but I can do every other do. I can do all things, how? Through Christ who strengthens me. So you have personal vigorous activity, you have absolute dependence in concert or harmony. So it's not one or the other, it's both. In other words, we're 100% responsible to be strong, and yet the strength comes 100% from Christ. The Christian life isn't 50-50. It's not us doing 50% and God doing 50%. We do a part and he does the other part. Or he does the first part and we do the second part. Both are wretched. It's 100% God working and 100% man working. It's not 50-50. It's not 75-25. Somebody says, well, I, I, I want to give at least God 90%. So let's say God works 90 we work 10. That's terrible. No, God works and we work, but we put it in that order. So our working is the product or the consequence of his working. So God works 100%. We work 100%. Let me illustrate this way. Go back to the inspiration of the scripture. The Holy Spirit inspires the human author to ensure that the human author writes down that which the Spirit wanted. But who writes it? The human author. And he writes it as a human. He writes it as a person. He draws from his own experiences. He draws from his own personality. So as much that we can tell Peter from Paul and John from James. And yet who, but it was the same Holy Spirit that wrote it. Who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit. Through men. So it's not wrong to say that men wrote the Bible, as long as you also say they wrote it as the product of the Spirit's inspiration. Who, who works in the Christian life? Man does. You do. I do. We're told to. Every page of the Bible tells us to work. And yet we find that we do so as the consequence of the Spirit's work in us. So he works in, we work out. And if we're not working out, it's evidence he's never worked in. If he's truly working in, we'll work out. We work, how much do we work? 100%. How much does God work? 100%. Just keep it in that order. He works in us and we work out. So it's not that we work first and then he works. He works in us and we work, but he works 100%. We work 100%. We're both working, but we're working in different ways. We work dependent upon him. Okay, uh, uh, let me give you one last text, and then we come to those five ways. Go to the next book, Colossians 1 and verse 28. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So I'm working, but I'm only working because he's working. I'm laboring, and I'm laboring in accordance as the result or consequence of his working in me. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. 
All right, so vigorous activity, absolute dependence, and there's this wonderful yet mysterious balance. Both are true. Be strong in the Lord. Now I want to come to five helps, but let me first of all uh, admit that Paul doesn't tell us back in uh, Ephesians 6.10 how, per se. He just tells us to do it. Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But because we believe the Bible is an organic whole, it's not wrong. In fact, it's in every way necessary to take a text like this that tells us to do something and look elsewhere for help in terms of how to do it. It's not cheating. It's not wrong. It's, somebody says, well, Paul doesn't tell us how to do it. So what are we supposed to do? Just figure it out on our own? No, let's look to the verses before, the chapters before, the books before, and let's look to the ones after. Let's look into the whole mind of God as made known to us in Scripture. Remember, this is one book. It's one book with one author. It's one book with one primary theme. God's glory in Christ. And that's Genesis to Revelation. All right, number one. Be thorough. I got a text for each. We'll see uh, if we uh, have to use each one of them. Sometimes I might have two. Be thoroughly convinced of your own native weakness. How much strength we find in Christ will be in direct proportion to how much weakness we find in ourselves. How much strength we get from Christ will be in direct proportion to how much weakness we see in ourselves. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Sorry, did I, second, is it, did I say Second Corinthians? I should have. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made complete or perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches in needs and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Or put another way, when I know of certainty I haven't any strength in myself, I look somewhere else. You're not going to go to the store unless you're sure there's no food in the refrigerator. When you open the refrigerator and the back of the refrigerator says, hello, and there's an echo, that means you need to go to the store. But if you open up the refrigerator and there's all kinds of food, then you're going to be slow to go to the store, reluctant to get food elsewhere because you already have some. So this first point is very simple. You have to open up the door of your soul and see it empty, see it barren. In fact, it's so empty, there's cobwebs. There's nothing in there. There's no strength in there at all. Remember how Jesus put it, apart from me, you. Here's how much strength we have native to ourselves. This is how much food there's natively in our refrigerator natively. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's not even an old, beat up, bruised grape in the back of the refrigerator. Calvin, in commenting on, on 2 Corinthians 12, 9, said this. 
We must feel our faintness and poverty that the saying of Paul, the power of God is made perfect in our weakness, may be fulfilled. For if our hearts are not deeply moved by a conviction of our weakness, we cannot receive seasonable assistance from God. Our hearts, in other words, Calvin is saying, have to be deeply moved by conviction of our weakness. We have to be absolutely and in total aware of our own native weakness. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you feel you're a very strong Christian, let me ask you why you have failed so much and why do you still fail? What happens to your resolutions and resolves? Why do you do often why do you often find yourself in the place of repentance? Why are you sometimes attacked with feelings of utter hopelessness and almost despair? To what does it do? It is all due to the plain fact of our weakness. It is because we are insufficient and failing. Our souls are empty natively. We haven't any ability native to ourselves. So you have to feel it, know it, understand it theologically, but be aware of it experientially. Secondly, be thoroughly convinced of Christ's abundant strength. To go back to my analogy, you have to realize not only that your refrigerator is empty, but the store is full. There's a whole lot of food in the store. So you have to be equally convinced of your weakness and his strength at the same time. Paul said, for when I am weak, that is weak in my own understanding, in my own conviction, in my own acknowledgement, then I am strong. Inference being, he looks elsewhere and finds strength. There's no food in my house. But there's a whole lot of food in the grocery store. Thomas Madden said, a Christian is to have a double eye, one upon God and the other upon himself. Upon himself in order to be reminded of his own weakness and upon God in order to be convinced of his all-sufficient power. Brethren, again, you can't overstate how empty your soul is by nature. There's nothing in there. Not a crumb. But neither can you overstate how much grace there is in Christ. It's not just a storehouse, it's a warehouse, warehouse is a string of them. And that's a foolish, terrible illustration because there's far more grace than that in Jesus. And so we find through the Psalms, for example, the psalmist is oftentimes reminding himself of God's power. Psalm 34, 8, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Brethren, our, our Lord is more powerful than all of our enemies, more powerful than all of our enemies combined. Psalm 29, 1, give unto the Lord or ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That means attribute to him, see him as glorious and powerful. Let me illustrate this way. If you well, some years ago now, 30 years ago now, when I was first converted, I worked in the city mission in the warehouse. 
And my job in the warehouse was to go through all the donated clothing and take the best for myself. Well, that was kind of my job. That was kind of a consequence to the job, a perk. But nevertheless, we were to go through the clothing, find the best ones, um, clean them. We had a little steamer, and then we would put a price tag on it and try to sell it. And all the clothing that was no good, which was probably three quarters, we bailed. We had this big machine that would bail it into a, it was, I don't know how heavy the bail was. You couldn't move it, obviously. Um, hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of pounds, these bales. And uh, the only way you could move them was with this uh, raggedy pitchfork that worked about 30% of the time. So you had to get the forklift up under it, put it on a pallet, and then you can move it. So you had to realize, first of all, that the pallet, or, or when, it's, when it had the, the bale of clothing on it, was far too heavy for yourself to move, obviously. Fifty men couldn't move. So you had to realize how weak you were, how unable you were to move it. But you also had to realize that when working, the forklift could move it very easily. In fact, it wasn't even a problem. The forklift actually could lift two of those. You couldn't put three on it. We tried and it went like that. <laughs> the back wheels came straight up. And it stood just like that forever. We didn't know what to do. I had to be convinced not only of my weakness and inability but the forklift's ability. You have to realize that in yourself, you're weak, but Christ is strong. You have to ascribe to him glory and strength. Thirdly, be thoroughly convinced that God delights in giving strength. In the illustration, the forklift is just a forklift. Non-personable. Not moral. God, of course, is God. And he's our father in Christ. And thus he delights to give us strength. We must not only be convinced of his mighty power, but his loving heart. You have to not only be convinced that he has it, but he delights to give it. Now go back to the Jesus statement. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask? I.e. strength. When you pray to him, if you being evil, evil, natively depraved, fallen, unredeemed humanity delights in doing good for their children. How much more does God delight in doing good for his? Let me give you a couple examples. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. Well, I do want to turn to one of them, but this first one, Joshua 1, 9. And then I think the New Testament counterpart in the Great Commission. Joshua 9, be strong and courageous. Ah, there it is. Be strong and courageous. It doesn't say in the Lord or by the power of his might. So surely this is a text that teaches moralism. Well, watch what he goes on to say. Be strong and courageous. Now he's speaking to who? Joshua, as Joshua is going to become the leader of the Israelite nation. He's going to have to now lead this rebellious large group of Hebrews into the promised land because Moses was dead. Be strong and courageous, but notice how. 
Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua, you have a big task ahead of you, one that no man can do by himself. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't fret. Here's why. Because I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I think Jesus possibly has this in mind. Remember when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. That's a a difficult task that could cause Christians to be fearful. You want us to go? Well, they all die. Most of them. You want us to go into the nations where all these wicked people are and they're going to. They're going to malign us. They're going to whip us. They're going to beat us. They're going to imprison us and they're going to kill almost all of us. Save John, who's going to be exiled. Because he goes on to say, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just like I was with Joshua. Joshua had to go into the land. And I and and he did so because I was with him. You guys have to go into the nations and you should do so because I, too, am with you. Now, there is one text I want to turn to. And this is Isaiah. Notice chapter 40 and verse 29. Isaiah 40 and verse 29. He gives power to who? The weak. That is, those who know themselves weak. Remember how Jesus put it. He's come not to call the righteous, but sinners. That is, not the, those who think they're righteous or think they're healthy, but know they're sinful and know they're sick. And this is exactly what we have here. He gives power to those who know themselves weak. Brother, stop and think about it. It's the only Christian, it's the only, Christianity is the only religion that extols a virtue of weakness so that all of the power and the might might be ascribed to God. What, what do we bring? What do we bring? I heard somebody say this today. The only thing he brought to his salvation was sin, and the only thing he brings to his sanctification is weakness. And that's the truth. The only thing I brought to my salvation was sin, and the only thing I bring to my sanctification is weakness. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young man shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. All right, fourthly. <clears throat> Humbly yet confidently plead your case before God in urgent prayer. And this takes me back to what I said earlier about the place of means. Now, the other points come through means. I mean, as you're reading your Bible, you're thinking about these things. How weak am I? How strong is he? How gracious and benevolent is he? And how willing he is to give me strength. You can think about that when you're all alone in the woods. You can think about that when you're driving your car. You can think about that when you're taking a shower. You can learn about that when you're hearing the teaching like tonight. You can meditatively contemplate that as you read your Bible and pray. So what are some of the things that you're to think about and thus pray about in your personal devotions? The previous points, how weak we are, how strong he is and how willing he is to give grace. 
We have to remember that grace and strength comes to our hearts through ordained means, as I've already said. Prayer is one of, if not the primary means, in which strength is conveyed to an individual soul. Remember how we have it at the end of Hebrews 4. In light of the fact that we have a high priest who never sinned and has gone into the heavens before us. Let us come with boldness. Why? Because it's our Father. Let us come with boldness. Because if evil men know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more is a gracious God willing to give good gifts to his? And let us ask through prayer, humbly but confidently, for grace and for mercy to help us in our time of need. Or, as James has it, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. He doesn't reproach. Here he is again, coming back, asking for more grace. A parent might do that. What? You want more? Eat what you have first. Or no, you're not going to have any more because you fed it to the dog. Or no, you're not going to have any more because you threw it. Uh, you hid it under the, under the carpet. No more grapes for you. But this isn't what God does. God gives liberally and without reproach. And then James says, and it will be given to him. Ask and you'll get it. If you ask for a new car, you may not get it. If you ask for a new house, you may not get it. If you ask for grace to love God and obey him, you'll get it, period. If you ask for grace to love and obey him, I assure you, you'll get it. James says, if you, if you ask believingly, you'll receive. And so prayer is one of, if not the foremost means ordained of Christ whereby we exchange our weakness for his strength. Or put another way, the weak are made strong. We ask him for it. Al Martin said, God has ordained that prayer be the means in which we exchange our weakness for his strength. Arbor, uh, Arthur Pink, prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude. An attitude of dependency, dependency upon God. Prayer is a confession of creature weakness, yea, of helplessness. Prayer is the acknowledgement of our need and the spreading it out before God. Prayer in itself is a humbling discipline. You're asking for something. Nobody generally likes to ask for something. Of course, there's some who make a living off it. But ordinarily, a, a, a proud man, or at least a man with dignity, I use proud there in the proper sense, he's not going to ask for a hand out. He might ask for a hand up if needed, but he wants to work with his hands. But brethren, this is very opposite in this case. No, we, we don't need just a hand up. We need a hand out. We're all beggars. Pure, needy beggars. We haven't anything, but our Father has everything. And so we're coming to him every day asking him. Let's go through a couple of Psalms to illustrate it. Let's start with Psalm 86. 86, 
16. You find, I don't know how often you find it. In one version, in one form or another, all through the Psalms, you'll find it. David asking for help. Oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. That's pretty straightforward. Give your strength to your servant. David, why do you need it? Why do you need strength? Because I haven't any. Why are you asking him? Because he has it. And he's more than willing to give it. 105.4. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. How often are you to seek his face and strength forevermore? All the time. Or perhaps we can say as often as you're weak. And how often is that? All the time. One last one. 138. Three, in the day when I cried out, you answered me. He cried out under a sense of need. He cried out to God and God answered him. Well, what was it that David asked for? And made me bold with strength in my soul. Thus, he asked for strength. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. When I asked you, David, and that in no small measure. All right, that brings us to the last point. Fifth one, diligently work hard with one eye always upon the Lord. So now we've come full circle. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. To go back to our warehouse in Forklift. You can stare at the forklift all day, but it's not going to move the pallet. You can be convinced of your weakness and its strength, but unless you get into the forklift and actually move the pallet, the pallet's not getting moved. You have to climb up into the machine and get to work, not trusting in yourself, but in the strength of the forklift. You you can see that there's a concurrence of working. The man is working with or by the machine, the forklift. So to every morning, you have to come from your bed to your knees with a sense of your weakness. And ideally, you open your Bible. Because in your Bible, you're reminded of your weakness. You're reminded of his strength. And you're reminded of his willingness to give it. And you're also reminded of the primary way in which he gives it, and that is prayer. And so you come from your bed to the floor to the scripture with a fresh reminder that you're weak, with acknowledgement that he's strong and that he's gracious. And then you say, oh, God, give me help this morning to obey you. And then you go out and obey him dependent upon that grace. You believe what he says is true. He says, if you ask me, I'll give you grace to obey me. So we consciously, aware of our weakness, aware of his strength, aware of his willingness to give it, 
we believingly and humbly ask for it, and then we get up from our knees and we go to work. We don't leave everything that we've just talked about behind us. No, we bring it all with us, a sense of our weakness, a sense of his strength, a sense of his willingness to give. Obviously, we don't, we don't think about all of those in every particular thing. Okay, I have, to, I have to keep my eyes straight. Let me remember I'm weak. He's strong. He has power. I have to ask him for help. It might be that you do that. It certainly wouldn't be wrong to do that. But ordinarily, you learn how to do that. You learn how to walk. How does the Bible put it? By the Spirit. That means dependent upon the Spirit's activity for everything, little things and big things, inward and outward things. So I'm asking for grace to help me. I'm walking as best I can, consciously dependent upon that grace, and I'm moving pallets from one place in the warehouse to another. I'm obeying God. I'm bearing fruit. I'm being conformed into Jesus' image. Go back to the man on the forklift again. While he has to cooperate with the machine, he works by the power of it. He works by the power and might of the forklift. The forklift is the one with the strength, but he nevertheless has to use it. He gets the work done by the power of another. That's, that's how we are. We get the work done by the power of another. We do it. It goes back to my earlier points. Who does it? We do. How? By his grace. Thus, for his glory. Because he's the one that ultimately has worked in us both the will and to do. Brother, we have every reason to be strong in the Lord. First, we're weak and needy creatures. Secondly, we have powerful enemies. Thirdly, we have a lot of work to do. There's sinners that need saving, saints that need sanctifying, and a blessed Savior that needs glorifying. So this is why he does it this way. So that he and he only gets all the glory. At the end of the day, he and he only gets all the glory. So you can tattoo this little text upon your heart or upon your conscience. Because it's a summary of the Christian life. Finally, my brethren. Be strong in the Lord. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.